You know, prepping for uh, this last place series, I suddenly had a flashback this week um, to a memory from my university days that I hadn't thought about in, in for absolutely in forever. Uh, but it was second year analog electronics. We were learning how to design like microchips and microprocessors and whatever to actually do the physical design of the, of the microchips. And uh, it was ENCE, Electrical and Computer Engineering, 234 was the class. And our class absolutely bombed the midterm. Like we crashed and absolutely burned. I remember the first class after the midterm, everybody knew they had done terribly. Nobody had gotten their test back yet. And we went to class, and the prof, uh, before he even handed back the exams, chewed us out for like 10 to 15 minutes because we had done so abysmally on the midterm. He was so mad. He was like, he was saying, you know, because you guys make me look terrible. And I, he, says, he says at one point, he says, okay, you know what the class average was? He says, 36. That was the class average on this exam. 36. He says, can I hand that in to the faculty? 36 on the exam? He said, not a chance. I can't do it. He says, if I hand that in, I'm going to get in trouble from the administration. They're going to say I'm not teaching properly and whatever. He says, I don't know what else to do. I, I'm going to have to shift all the marks up to like, till the class average is like a 65 or something. I don't know, maybe I'll bell curve it and whatever. But you guys are all so dumb that you're making me do all this stuff and I hate it. He says, but that's it. So whatever mark you get on the exam, that's not going to be your final mark. Don't freak out. I'll give you a better one. And uh, we'll figure that out later. And he was so angry and so defeated. And he's giving us this speech. And all of a sudden, in the middle of class, his hand goes up. And uh, the prof calls on him. He says, yeah, Gary, what? And Gary stands up and he says, sir, I vehemently protest your plan to bell curve our marks into a more acceptable range. And he says, Gary, what's your problem? He says, why, why don't you want me to curve the marks? And Gary says... Because, sir, not all of us are stupid. Some of us actually did quite well on the exam. And if you bell curve the marks, it will be, literally said this, it will be less obvious how much smarter I am than everybody else in the class. <laughs> the, he, Gary made a lot of friends that day. He uh, <laughs> was a real popular guy in our class. But I mean, this is the most preposterous way of looking at this entire situation. And, but you know what? To be perfectly honest, the University of Waterloo fostered this mentality. On every single transcript we got in engineering, uh, was you, the, every single transcript would list the class, and then it would tell you what grade you got, and then the next column was your rank out of the 93 people in your class. So ENCE 234, I got a 78, let's say, and I ranked 47th out of 93 people. The whole framework of how to understand education had nothing to do with how you were going to learn, what you were learning, how you were growing, and all that kind of stuff. The whole framework of education was how do you rank next to everybody else in the class, and how quickly or how high can you climb in the, in the ranking System And honestly, the reason I thought about it for this series, because to me, this is exactly the mentality that Jesus is talking about in this series. We, we've been in this series called Last Place, where um, we've sort of been exploring and exposing our tendency to, to judge other people according to relatively arbitrary categories in order out of you know, pride or insecurity or both, or maybe they're the same thing. 
um, so that we can feel better about ourselves compared to other people. Um, each week of the series has been rooted in a story where that contrasts two groups of people who, who rank in very different places in the social hierarchy of first century Israel. We called the first week married or single, but we should have called it male or female, man or woman. Because uh, it was really about how men were valued and elevated in that ancient culture and women were devalued and forgotten and ignored and even oppressed. The second week we called big or small because uh, it was about the disciples who were adults who were valued and esteemed and elevated in that culture who were blocking the way of children who were ignored and forgotten and oppressed in that culture, devalued and pushed off to the side. The big people mattered, the little people didn't. Last week... Jeff talked about, we call it rich or poor, because in that culture, just like ours, you know, those who were wealthy were elevated and valued and esteemed, and those who were poor were pushed off to the side, forgotten, ignored, and oppressed. And every single week has exposed the tendency for us to judge people based on relatively arbitrary categories in order to feel superior about ourselves in comparison to them. And every week has invited us to deconstruct that mentality. In the first week, we were invited to become a community of eunuchs. Short pause while all the men leave the room. Now, if that's a surprising sentence to you, then maybe go back and watch the first talk. But to be a community that lives outside of the categories, where the categories are just fundamentally irrelevant. The second week challenged us to become a community of hospitality. The disciples were blocking the access of the children to Jesus. Jesus embraced the children and welcomed them into his presence to be a community that is inviting people in and ushering people into the presence of Jesus. Last week invited us to become a community of generosity where we're divesting ourselves of our standing, our status, and our privilege, in that case symbolized by wealth, in order to invest it in the people of none. And this week, in, in this week's text, which starts in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus deconstructs that entire mentality and gives kind of the grounds or the rationale, the explanation as to why it is he's inviting us to be a different kind of community. And this is what it says, Matthew 20, starting verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven, the way things are supposed to be in a world where God's allowed to be in charge, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. Jesus says, I want you to imagine there's a farmer, and it's harvest time. And his vineyards, his vines are loaded up with grapes, and, it, and there's a lot of work to get done because these grapes have got to get off the vine before they begin to rot, and he loses all of his investment. And so with the amount of work that's got to be done, the farmer gets up early one more. They're always getting up early, but... That gets up before the crack of dawn, heads into town to go to the village marketplace because he knows that in the village marketplace he's going to find a bunch of men standing around, unemployed guys who are looking for work, who are offering themselves to be temp help for the day. And he goes into town and finds a gang of guys, loads them up into the pickup truck, and basically drives them back to the farm and offers to pay them a denarius, which was like a Roman coin, one denarius, for 12 hours work on the farm. It was a fair price. That was the going rate for uh, temp day laborers in the ancient world. He was offering them a fair wage to, for an honest day's work uh, for some guys who otherwise would have stood there unemployed and would have had nothing to feed their family at the end of the day. In verse 3 it says this, 
It says, about nine in the morning he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever's right. And so they went. He goes back into town at 9 a.m. He's picking something up for his foreman or for the crew or whatever. And he's walking through the marketplace and it says that he saw some others standing there. He wasn't out looking for more laborers, but he walks through the marketplace. He sees another group of guys standing there and he walks over and he says, hey, fellas, you looking for work? We could use more help. They're like, yeah, we'd be up for that. He says, okay, jump in the truck. He says, I'll take you back to the farm. You can work the last nine hours of the day because the work day is from six to six. You can work the last nine hours and we'll figure out the dollars and cents later. They're like, that sounds like a great idea. And they jump in the truck and they go to work. Jesus says two more times, the guy goes back to town at noon. He goes back to town, picks up some more workers. At 3 p.m., he goes back to town, picks up another group of guys. And then it says this, about, in verse 6, about 5 in the afternoon, he went out, and he found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. And he said to them, okay, you also go work in the vineyard. He shows up at the end of the day. There's literally one hour to quitting time. And he sees one last group of guys standing in the corner, and he walks over, and he says, what's the deal? And they said, well, we just didn't get work today. He says, all right, guys. He's climbing the truck. You help us clean up for the last hour, and, uh, and then I'll bring you back. So they jump in the truck, and he drives them over, and they put in an hour's worth of work, helping them clean up and finish up for the day. And then it says this in verse 8. It says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Verse 9, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, came in and each received a denarius. The foreman calls the workers over and he says, okay guys, time to get paid. Because in ancient world, the day laborers, you pay them at the end of every single day because you don't know if they're going to work for you the next day. He calls them over, he says, okay, he says, time to get paid. Who were the dudes who worked that last hour, who just came for one hour? And they all step forward. And he reaches into the purse and he pulls out a full denarius and he gives it to each one of them. They work for one hour on the farm and they get paid for 12. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to be one of those workers. I mean, just, okay, just think about this, right? They were hanging around the marketplace all day till five in the afternoon, discouraged, demoralized, unemployed, realizing that in about 60 minutes, they were going to have to go home and explain to their wife that they didn't get any work that day. They were going to go home and they were going to have to explain to their kids that they weren't able to buy any vegetables or any fruit. They weren't able to pick up anything else for supper that night. They were going to have to warm up whatever happened to be left in the house because they had nothing to bring home to give to their families. And all of a sudden, but they hung in there, right? They didn't go home. They were hanging in there at 5 o'clock because, you know what, like something's better than nothing just in case somebody shows up and somebody shows up. And hires them for that last hour of the day. And they jump in the truck thinking, thank God I'm going to get paid just a tiny little bit for today. But at least I've got something to bring home to the family. And then the pay time comes. And they get handed a paycheck for 12 times what they had earned. 
mean, just think about it. It's the babysitter who watches the kids for a couple hours and gets paid 300 bucks, right? It's the barista who all she does is turns around, you know, pours a cup of black coffee, hands it to somebody and gets tipped 50 bucks. Like it's, I just can't imagine, just the pure joy Right, The pure joy of being gifted something beyond anything you could have ever imagined. And these guys, they float out of there, walking three feet off the ground. They can't wait to go home and show their wives and tell them the story about what it is that had happened. Well, now imagine. Remember, they're the first ones to get paid. Now imagine the other guys standing around. Right, especially the ones who were hired first, the ones who were there for 12 hours. Right, I can imagine them standing around and saying, well, wait a minute. If those guys got paid a denarius and all they did was work for one hour, like what are we going to get paid, right? They got paid 12 times what they were worth. What, you know, I'm imagining them standing in a circle and they're talking about, okay, well, like what are you going to do with the money? Well, geez, you know, if I get paid 12 denarii for, for today's work, I... I think I'm going to pay off my MasterCard bill for the first time in I don't know how long. Another guy says, you know what, I'm going to put a down payment on, my, on a car. My wife and I have needed a second vehicle forever. Another guy says, you know what, my wife and I have been talking about redoing our kitchen. I think, I think we're going to start that. Guy says, forget all of you. I'm taking my kids to Disney World Jerusalem. Like, we're just, we're going to go and we're celebrate. Verse 10, it says this. So when they came to those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received only one denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us, who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. These guys are furious. We busted our humps in your field for 12 hours. You saw how much work there was to do. You saw what we accomplished for you today. We busted our humps for you today. In the heat of the day, the scorching sun beating down on all of us. And these guys show up with one hour left. Help us clean up a little bit in the cool breeze of the afternoon. And you're paying them as much as you paid us? Mm-mm-mm, they're ticked. And I would have been too. And you would have been too. And the reason that you and I would have been ticked and the reason that they were ticked is because we all fall into the comparison game. We all fall into that life ranking system of trying to figure out where we fit. That's what was going on with these guys, right? They're out there working in the fields and these crews just keep showing up at various points during the day. And these guys, you know what they've done? They've reduced people's personal value to a math equation, right? They're looking at this crew that showed up at nine and this crew that showed up at noon and three and this crew that showed up at five. And they're thinking, listen here, your personal worth equals The hours worked, plus the work accomplished, plus the circumstances you endured along the way. That's what you're worth. And they're looking at these other crews and thinking, well, listen, if the going rate for one hour work in the late afternoon breeze is worth one denarius, then I must be worth at least 12 times 
what these people get paid. The reason they're angry is because they've fallen into the comparison trap. And you and I do it too. We do it in all the ways that we've talked about in this series. We, uh, some of us individually, certainly the church as a community, culture as a whole, we value and esteem and elevate men ahead of women in innumerable ways. Still guilty of valuing men more than we value women. We esteem and elevate people according to age, except we do it the opposite of the ancient world. We value the young and despise the old shove them off to the side. We value people according to, um, according to wealth, just like they did uh, in the ancient world. The rich are esteemed, the poor oppressed. We value people according to marital status, like the first story. The married with kids, and then the married without kids, and then the single, and then the widowed, and then the divorced. We value the able-bodied ahead of the disabled, the healthy ahead of the sick. We value people according to race. We value people according to religion, right? We value the majority status of race and ethnicity and religion, and we forget and oppress and marginalize the minority. We value people according to sexual orientation. We value people within the community of faith according to spiritual maturity, but who's been around the longest and who knows their Bible the best and who believes the best and who behaves the best and who volunteers the most. And We have all of these systems, all of these ways in which we reduce people's value to math equations, right? We called this one old and new, thinking about the community of faith, because this is about, in the story, the farmer represents God, and the workers represent those that God invites to participate in what he's doing in the world, and those who have been around the longest, and worked the hardest, and accomplished the most, and put up with the most, are in the community of faith just get valued more than the, than the Johnny-come-latelys, right? We think we sort of measure our value before God and our value before each other according to this basis, right? Well, just look at how long I've been in this community. I've been here from the beginning, right? Just, you know, look at how faithfully I attend. Look at how committedly I serve. I volunteer in an anchor cause. I lead a life group. Just look at how much I've given to the community. Look at how much I've endured. Look how much I've put up with. Look at how much change I've absorbed over the years. And I'm still here and I'm still trying. Look at how well I know my Bible. Look at how often I've taught. Look at how much I've led. Look at how often I pray. Look at how you know, deeply I pray. Right, Like all of the ways that we have for establishing our value before God and our value in the community, especially when we put on the filter that says, look at how much I do compared to almost everybody else. We play the comparison game just like they did. And you know what the truth is? This is one of the two things that I read in this story is this, the comparison game has a way of poisoning your soul. A comparison game can poison your soul. Not can, it will. 
Just look at these guys, the comparison between their attitude at the beginning of the day and their attitude at the end of the day. At the beginning of the day, they get up before the crack of dawn, they go to the marketplace as unemployed day laborers who are financially insecure, whose family teeters on the brink of stupid poverty all the time because they can't get a steady job. They show up early in the morning, standing there wondering whether the opportunity will come for them to work that day. There they are in a labor pool with dozens of other guys. And this farmer pulls up in a pickup truck and he points to them and he says, Come on, you come with me. I need your help today. I'll give you a denarius. And these guys are thrilled at the prospect of going to this guy's farm and working 12 hours, um, you know, uh, just a, a mountain load of work to get done in the scorching heat of the sun for a denarius. They're excited at the prospect of the work that they've been invited to do because now they'll have something to bring home to their family. Fast forward to the end of the day. They grumble and complain about exactly the same thing that made them excited at the beginning of the day. Right, you catch that? At the beginning of the day, they're excited to go and work for 12 hours in the scorching heat, doing a mountain of work for a denarius of pay so they can provide for their family, thrilled. At the end of the day, what are they grumbling about? We worked all day, 12 hours in the scorching heat. We did all this work, and what did you pay us? One denarius? What's the matter with you? And what's the difference between them at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day? Comparison. Somewhere in the middle, other work crews began to show up and the inner dialogue begins of comparison between the work that I've done and how long I've been here and what I've contributed to the farmer and how much I've done and how hot it's been before you ever got here and you don't even know what we did over there. And the inner dialogue starts about how much more important, how much more significant, how much more valuable I am than them. Put it this way, if the farmer hadn't shown up with any more workers that day, if it had just been the guys who started at six and they worked till six and got their denarius and went home, they would have went home as happy as they were when they arrived. Because there was no comparing to do. Say it another way. If they had chosen a different attitude in their spirit, if they'd chosen not to play the comparison game, I mean, how much different their attitude would have been the same? Right, Just filled with joy and hope and life. And I just can't believe how lucky I am that I had the opportunity to work today and provide for my family. Right, Just think about how much different their experience had been. If instead of a crew showing up at 9 a.m. and you start to think, well, it must be nice. They only have to work you know, nine hours a day. They don't work all 12 hours. A group shows up at 3 p.m. And you're like, oh, yeah, the sun was worse two hours ago. You're lucky. If a group goes up at shows up at 5 p.m. and you're thinking, are you kidding me? You're going to show up for an hour and clean up and go home? Must be nice. You know, instead of that attitude, what if their attitude when the farmer shows up with another crew was this? They look and they say, you guys got work. Good for you. I saw you standing in the labor pool this morning and you didn't get picked. When we got on the truck, you were left behind. And the whole way here, I was thinking, geez, I hope they get work today. I hope they're not left standing there all day. And I, and I know you haven't gotten work in a, in a couple days now. And so I was starting to think, okay, I'm getting a denarius. What if I only take part of that? And what if I use the rest to help you out with your family? And, but I'm so happy you got work. Even if it's not for a full day, at least you got something. It makes me so happy for you. It's the comparison game. 
that spoils your soul. Right? It doesn't just distort and, and twist their relationship with each other. It twists their relationship with the farmer who represents God. See, at the beginning of the day, they accept the job as pure gift. It's pure gift. It's grace. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They did nothing to merit it. It was just a pure gift on behalf of the farmer. They showed up at the labor pool. That farmer didn't necessarily need to hire that day, but he did. That farmer didn't have to hire them that day. Maybe they weren't the strongest. Maybe they weren't the biggest. Maybe they weren't the smartest or the tallest or the ablest or whatever. Maybe the farmer didn't know them and wasn't comfortable hiring somebody he didn't know. He didn't have to hire them, but he did. He didn't have to pay them a denarius. Right? Maybe the farmer's short on cash and he, this is all I can afford. Maybe he's trying to drive a hard bargain, see if he can get them to work for less. He could, listen, I'll pay you for three quarters of a denarius. But he didn't. He paid them the full value of what they're worth. It was pure gift. And they, they got in the truck and went to work that morning saying, we have been given a tremendous opportunity that we didn't deserve. And they would have praised God for giving them the chance to work that day. And then they see The guys who show up last get paid a denarius. And they start to think, well, then what are we worth? And they get paid a denarius. They get paid the same. And it's the comparison game that embitters them towards the farmer. And suddenly, with the farmer who represents God, the stuff that God has given us, just purely in his grace, purely because he loves us, that God gives us simply because we are who we are and he is who he is, the stuff that God... You know, God just, the gifts that God gives suddenly go sour in our mouths. Because all of a sudden we're convinced that we deserve the whole lot more. Yeah, I earned my denarius, but I'm going to renegotiate my contract because I'm worth so much more than them. How different would their day, their attitude have been if when payday came, Their attitude was this. The guys show up, work for an hour, get paid to denarius, and they're like, you guys are so lucky. Oh, I'm so proud of you because you showed up, you only got an hour's worth of work, and I was a little bit worried that you were only going to get a little bit of pay, and maybe that wasn't going to be enough to support your family, but you got paid a full denarius. Guys, you have no idea how lucky you were. Today was horrible. There was so much work to do, and the sun was so hot. It was brutal out there. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but you guys didn't have to deal with any of that, and you still got paid the full amount. That's amazing. I'm so happy. Like, uh, Think about how our attitude changes when we actually, instead of comparing ourselves with each other and talking, convincing ourselves about how much more valuable, how much more worth we are to everybody else if we just celebrate the goodness of everybody. Comparison poisons the soul. And it has absolutely nothing to do with what God is like. Let me read the end of the story. Verse 13. This is the farmer. He says, the farmer answered one of them, when they're complaining about getting paid a denarius, he said, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I paid you exactly what we agreed on. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. See, the heart of God is a heart of equality. See, the farmer knows the difference between the workers. He knows that some came at six and some at nine and some at noon and some at three and some at five. He understands that they've earned different amounts of money. See, the thing is the farmer doesn't care. 
All through this series, we've talked about all the categories, all the labels, all the ways that we judge each other, the ways that we're different in gender and in marital status and in health and in wealth and in age and in race and and religious background and sexual orientation and spiritual maturity, all the ways that we're different. And God knows all the ways that we're different from each other. He just doesn't care. When it comes to the way God loves each one of us, God's commitment is to love every one of us exactly the same, to embrace us exactly the same, to delight in us exactly the same, to welcome us exactly the same, to pour his love on us in exactly the same way. He knows about all the things that make you you. All the stuff you can't control like gender and and age and all that kind of stuff. And all the stuff you can control like your devotion to Christ and your belief and your behavior and whatever. He knows all the things that make you you. He knows all the things that people judge you over and he just doesn't care. Because God's heart is a heart of equality. His commitment is to love everybody exactly the same. Apparently in God's economy, you don't have to work a certain length of time. You don't have to get a certain amount done. You don't have to endure a certain amount of, you know, certain kinds of circumstance or whatever. You don't have to prove yourself to God in order to be loved. Apparently when it, with God, the way it works is this. You show up, you get loved with everything God has. That's the only way God knows how to play it. But the news is better than that because God's heart is not just a heart of equality God's heart is a heart of generosity because the truth of the matter is that God paid them all the same but he valued them differently in a sense right these guys who came first wanted to reduce everybody's value to a math equation right amount worked plus stuff accomplished plus circumstance endured is how much you're worth God says okay let's play that game let's reduce everything to a math equation your equation is wrong here's the equation everybody is worth one denarius now you figure out what I've invested in you right because think about it the ones who came last got the most even though everybody got the same if you worked 12 hours and got a denarius you got exactly what you agreed to exactly what you deserved But if you work nine hours and get a denarius, you get 33% more than you deserve. If you work six hours, you get twice as much as you deserve. You work three hours, you get four times as much as you deserve. The people who showed up and worked for one hour for a denarius got 12 times what they deserved. In the economy of God, the people who deserve it the least get the most. Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verse 20, To think about just one category, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You could say it this way. When sin begins to add up, grace starts to multiply. And when sin begins to multiply, grace increases exponentially. The amount, the less you feel like you deserve God's love and grace, the less you're told by other people who are judging you and labeling you and whatever, that you deserve God's grace, the less you deserve God's love and grace, the more God invests his love and grace in you, the exponentially more he invests his love and grace in you, which is why he says the last will be first. That's why we called this series Last Place. That's why the graphic is of a guy holding up a trophy with the last celebrating coming in last. Because it's the people that everybody else says deserve to be last who come in first when it comes to receiving the love and grace of God. It's a race to last place because those who come in last end up being first in the being recipients of the grace and love 
of God. But the news is even better than that. And this, by the way, this is the kind of community God's calling us to become. A community of equality where all the categories don't matter, where everybody gets love full out exactly the same, and where the people who deserve it the least get it the most. But the news is even better than that because in the life and the death of resur- and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you start to think about what God actually did, here's the truth. God never asks you to work at all. You don't have to do anything to earn God's love and grace. Truth of the matter is, you know, if the farmer is God and we're the workers, here's what God really did. He didn't hire any one of us to work in order to earn his love. What he did instead is he sent his, he sent his one and only son into the fields to do all the work for us and then paid us just for showing up. Right, Because Jesus came to earth and lived his life as the living example of what it looks like when a human being filled with the Spirit of God lives in a relationship of love with God and just loves everybody else as much as they love themselves. And the life of, that Jesus lived carried him all the way to the cross where he died and was raised again three days later so that we who put our faith in him could be forgiven of all of our sin, all of our failing, all of the ways in which our soul is poisoned by how we compare ourselves to others, that he he forgave us of all of the junk that hangs off our lives, all the stuff that makes us feel so undeserving and so on, and transforms us into a new kind of person through the generous gift of his overflowing love. And friends, that's what we celebrate when we come to the communion table, which we're going to do this morning. As you come this morning to celebrate communion, as you receive the piece of bread and dip it in the juice, the bread which represents the body of Jesus and the juice which represents his blood, as you eat it, come and eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ represented by the bread and the juice in a celebration of the grace and the love that God has poured into your life, though you had done nothing to deserve it. And come with those around. We come to the table together as a community. Not in some sort of ranking system, not as some who deserve it more and some who deserve it less, or some who need it more and some who need it less. We come together as those equally loved, equally embraced, equally invited, equally welcomed, and equally fed with the love of Jesus Christ. We come together as a community basking in the generous love of God. May we receive that love and learn to live it with each other. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for the ways that you have loved all of us equally and the same. Thank you for the generosity of the love you've poured out for us. And we pray that we would learn to not only receive it for ourselves, but to live it and to share it with everybody you surround us with. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.